Um, and I think that one of the interesting conversations at the moment in the UK is around vulnerability and focusing on vulnerability rather than upon perhaps on, on criminality. But you, yes, you've got a job to investigate criminality and prevent it where you can, but the, the major focus should be upon those who very often are the same people the police are encountering in their proactive roles who are vulnerable as much as they are perpetrators. Or when you catch them young, they're, they're on the verge of the criminal world. Now, I'm no expert in this area, but I think that's a really interesting approach because it changes the interactions immediately. If you're focusing on looking for criminality or your focus is looking on vulnerability, you know, your first, your first conversation is how are you, you know, as opposed to what are you doing here? So it's changing that kind of, that simple focus would be the starting point. And, and you'd have to then reinforce that by saying, okay, then you, your first reporting is on what's, what evidence was this, if you've talked to a 15 year old on the street at midnight, what were the risks? What were the concerns in the air? Where were they? What was the neighborhood like, et cetera? Why were they not at home? Who were they with? And you're building up a very different picture of that person than if you're looking at it as a potential criminal. So I always think it's, it's small things. The, the big policy changes are up there somewhere, but actually the day-to-day -day interactions on the street, it's a lots and lots more things. Today on PCC Local Time, we begin a new series of across-the-pod conversations between local government professionals and academics in the U.S., England, Scotland, and Denmark. Like observing a good piece of art, we are looking at contrast in shapes, form, structure, and the way they all come together. How do contrasting perspectives help us see our world more clearly? Today, in our first episode, we explore what happens when an ethnologist from the UK who writes about police culture has a conversation with the police chief from the US who is actively evolving that culture. My co-host, John Diamond, professor emeritus at Edgehill University in the UK, has been hugely helpful to me in creating this series. Although he was not able to be with us for this episode, I think I can say that we both value rich understanding of how government and academia work together to impact community and public policy. My guests today are Professor Mike Rowe and Chief Roland Camacho. Mike is an ethnologist and professor in public sector and organizational management at the University of Liverpool. He recently published his book titled Dissembling Police Culture. Ron is a chief of police in Chambersburg, Pennsylvania. He has been a guest on this podcast before, episode 31, and you may hear us make a few references to that episode in this one. Ron has completed his doctorate in criminal justice and police science and is also an executive coach. You can find out more about both of them in the show notes. So, off we go. I begin by asking Mike and Ron whether and why the legitimacy of policing has come into question in recent years. Mike starts us off. I think, that, I think this would be an interesting point just to clarify. For me, on this side of the, of the Atlantic, there's been a bit of a repercussion from um, Black Lives Matter, obviously. And then oh, the defund the police debate has been in the background here. But the greater crisis really has come from within policing, in, particularly in London. The Metropolitan Police has been much criticized recently. A series of cases where officers have 
been involved in violent sexual offences, including murder. And so this has raised all sorts of questions about who are police officers? Who are we recruiting to do the job? How are they trained? How are they supervised? And those sorts of questions are coming up. So it's not quite to defund or what have you, but that's there as well. It's just this other aspect. And I think, Ron, I'm listening to the podcast you did a few weeks back and that kind of the recruitment challenges as well that feed in to that because increasingly the number, the officers doing the emergency response roles are, have less than two years experience. And that's, that's a real concern for a lot of people. I don't know if that resonates with you, Ron. Um, uh, yeah, it definitely does. We're going through a recruitment crisis here in the United States. It's on the, it's on the front tongue of every police chief across the nation. There's very few departments that it's not hitting and they're scrambling with ideas on how to solve this recruitment issue. Some have lowered standards, which most of us are saying, you don't do that. Maybe look at the standards. Mm. Policing, as you know, is always evolving. And what was common practice 30 years ago, sometimes is not going to fit in modern policing departments. And I think where you have problems is where those departments, they hold onto that line, they hold onto that standard and they refuse to evolve. And I use the word evolve more than reform because everybody's talking about police reform. Most modern police departments here in the United States we're, we're constantly evolving and reforming because we have to, because it's litigious and liability is at the front of a lot of things that we do. So we have to make sure that those policies are in place. And that's where the problem lies in a lot of places because the departments almost become robotic mm. and the way they deal with the citizens, they're so worried about liability that they concentrate on that aspect and they forget about the human part, which is something that I think that I've learned to do over the mm-hmm. years. And I think that's why we're successful here in my department. And you're right. If here, and I'm sure it's the same in, in Great Britain, one scandal that happens in California or in Portland or in Florida affects all of policing. And it's just, it's hard. So the chiefs and the executives and the sheriffs were, were always constantly trying to get ahead of that. And I think the way we do that is by making sure you have a great relationship with your community and being transparent and being accountable, which is a very hard concept for yeah. some of my peers to understand. Yeah. Just out of interest, if, if so in the, when something goes wrong in London, uh, the rest of the police, the rest of the country say, that's the London problem. We don't have it here. And, I, and, and there's, there's a problem there, isn't there? Because actually they should be paying attention. Are there the signs of the same sorts of problems in their own police forces? And I guess that's part of what you're thinking about too, that what happens in Los Angeles or New York is not something you can ignore and say that's a hundred hundreds of miles away. That's, that, that's, it's going to affect you. Yeah. It is going to affect us because that's the way the media is. That's the way the times are. So what you have to do when that happens is immediately, if you don't know your policies and procedures, or if you don't know the culture of your department, 
uh, those chiefs that are nervous or sheriffs that are nervous or really don't know their people or don't know their their departments, they're immediately going into their policy manuals or asking their accreditation managers, is that in our policy? Do, do we do that? And if it is, let's get rid of it right away, which is really not the way. It's a knee-jerk reaction. And then a lot of times you're going to get that negative feedback and you have to have those honest conversations with the community. Yes, we can all say that which was illegal, immoral, and just plain wrong. That's not what we do here. And if you've done the work, if you've really done the good hard work with your community, that shouldn't be so much. So I'll give you a quick example about that. During the George Floyd protests, we had protests in our downtown area for like 21 straight days. No, no arrest, no property damage, no incidents at all. And I remember standing there on a Sunday when the crowd got really large for our community. It was about 300 people. Mm -hmm. And I remember a lady holding up a sign saying, F the police. And I'm there and I'm protecting her constitutional right to protest. And the lady looks at me and she goes, she's chanting. And then she looks at me and she says, I don't mean this for you. This is not you guys. This is other police officers. We like you. We don't like other police officers. You, you have to look at that and say, in, in some ways, that is a strike against my profession and it hurts. It's not comfortable. But then in another way, you have to look at that and say, maybe we're doing something right here. Maybe we build up that, mm-hmm. that community engagement so much and that trust with the community that we can absorb that and then continue and move forward. I think what the George Floyd protest did here across the country is really wake up and the other Black Lives Matter protests, but specifically with the George uh, Floyd ones was really wake up the chiefs and sheriffs across the United States to say, you better make sure that you have a good relationship with your community and you better do a really hard look internally into what you're doing, your policies and practices and make sure that you're squared away and make sure that you don't have that rogue guy that maybe you've been ignoring. We can't do that anymore. But a ton of different police departments across the United States, a ton of different internal cultures across the United States, and we're never going to be able to solve that problem 100%. I think that's a big issue in terms of the differences between the two contexts is when we're talking about large police forces in the US, they are very large and, and London is large. Yes. But we have then smaller ones, but nowhere near as small as some of the police forces in the US, for example. So, um, so and just for context, how, roughly how many officers do you have in your police? So we have 35 police officers here. We police borough, but it's in some places it will be classified as a city of about 22,000 people. We have a couple major highways mm. that intersect and border the borough of Chambersburg. And that brings up the number daily. Yeah. We, we grow to about maybe 30, 35,000 during the day. So we're very, to, to give you a little more context about us, we're very busy, mm. but we're not violent. And mm. I think that's a, a lot of the work that we've done 
to push and keep the violence out of the town. We're very heavy on technology. As you heard the other podcast, we've got a ton of cameras, which the, the English police departments, they really taught us that the great use of those cameras, you guys were the first ones to really use that, that technology in a way that showed us how we could be successful here in the United States using that. So I'm blessed that I have the cameras that I do and the technology that I do to get on top of crime very quickly and solve it. I just wanted to, to provide just a little more context. You began in the city of York and before that you were in New York. Am I remembering that correctly? No, I grew up in New York, but I, I was never a New York City police officer. I had cousins that were New York City police officers and we've had very different, very different careers. So very different policing methods used there and used where I first policed in York, Pennsylvania. Professor York, Pennsylvania, 100 man, 100 to 110 man police department, urban city, York City, a tough place, rough place. When I was there, crack and heroin were yeah. the mainstays. And there were a lot of, for a town that size of about 40,000, about double what I have here in Chambersburg, we average 10 homicides a year. Sometimes that number jumped up to 14. They recently, a couple of years ago, maybe a year or two ago, yeah. and, and the professor, that's about an hour and a half, hour and 15 minutes from where I'm east of where I'm currently at. Yeah. Yeah, that seems, for the context of a, a British and England, English police force, uh, force will be a rough, between three and 4,000 is about the, the average side police officers. Wow. So this, the... You talked about knowing your officers and knowing the culture. I think you could, with, with a smaller force, everybody in that force, and, and you can have a real sense of who, who is, who is who, what their strengths are, where they're vulnerable, or what have you. It's a very different way you're talking about a much bigger organisation where you're relying upon your your first line supervisors and your, your sergeants and inspectors in the UK context. To be that the eyes and ears, if you like, where are the, where are the problems and where are the, the officers we should be paying attention to. So it just makes that, that knowing your officers a bit more yeah. problematic, doesn't it? Yeah. yeah. Mike, why don't you give us a little more context? Mm. And yeah. I was very interested in your recent book, which we will make sure we put into the show notes <laughs> so people know. I don't know if it's actually out on the shelves yet, but it is. Yeah. Okay, great. As I, yeah, so I'll put a link in for that. But you say in that book that it really began with the research project on hmm. stop and search and the disproportionate use of stop and search. So if you could give us just a little more understanding, was that in Liverpool? Was that just in general that you were thinking about that? And hmm. it evolved, you say, into understanding more of the culture that gives rise to this. Yeah, I think what we were we were asked by one police force, and officially it's anonymous, but it's not very far from where I live in Liverpool. Okay. And we were asked to look at the problem of stop and surge and the disproportionate use of stop and surge, again, like on young black men in particular. And that's a real problem in London. 
And, and there's a tendency to say it's a London problem, very much like these kind of high profile incidents, but it's not a problem everywhere else. Actually it, it, it is, but it's slightly different everywhere else. So what was, anyway, so, so we were asked to look at this. So we proposed this ethnographic study. So to follow officers around, because we can look at statistics till, till we're blue in the face and it doesn't, it tells us there's a problem, but it doesn't tell us why there's a problem and what we can do about it. So we wanted to understand how officers used this, this power, this uh, stop and search or stop and frisk equivalent in the US probably. And what, in what circumstances they used it, why, how they thought about it. And actually most officers don't use it. It's actually some, some officers whose task is to be what we call proactive, which is to go looking for, um, trouble, gangs, drugs, and all of that kind of, uh, associated activity. And those officers use it in a particular way. So, so it's, so to condemn all officers as being using their, the, the, these powers disproportionately is, is to misunderstand what's actually happening and how the officers are using it and why they're using it. So that's what we were trying to do to understand, again, get away from the kind of mudslinging of you're racist. No, we're not saying what's that, that gets nowhere. So if we can understand why officers used it, then we could do something more about changing it. And the, the reason culture then comes in is because so many people refer to culture as an, ex, an explanation, but to me, the, in the way they're using it. I think it's a different, they're using a different sense to the way you're talking about. You're talking about people in a team, etc. This is a, a general kind of uh, way of tiring all officers as if there's those at the front line have a, a culture that is racist, misogynist, homophobic, etc. And they're all the same. And that's no use to anybody kind of sleep. That's just throwing mud at people. I have a quote here from your book, Mike, hmm. that I think fits. It says, by attributing failings to police culture, we avoid having to really understand those failings. And I wonder whether we also misunderstand the routine and the more positive decisions and actions that police officers take. So in other words, I understand this as assigning negativity to these, these failings as opposed to looking more broadly at the culture mm. and also what's happening that's on the positive side. Mm. What do you think about that, Ron? I think here in the United States, there's a, a very important piece that's taken out of that, right? When New York got in trouble for the stop and frisk, they forgot an incredible word that's in there, stop, question, and frisk. Mm -hmm. And the ability to articulate why you're doing what you're doing. And those officers, I think they were under tremendous amounts of pressure, right? Mm -hmm. So you had the pressure of keep crime down, keep crime low, and then not being able to articulate why, or maybe some officers just doing that, just stopping and frisking without the questioning, without the articulation, which gets them in trouble. And we learn from that. So we learn from those mistakes that happen across the United States and departments that um, are well-trained and are up on their policies and procedures really can avoid that. For us here, that's drilled into them. And then we're able, in, in some places, 
those movements happen very quickly so that we could start changing what we're doing. And it's even though when I was on the street, we were doing that, you had to be able to articulate why you were doing what you were doing or that whatever you recovered was going to get tossed out in court anyway. So just making sure that spread out amongst the department, that the department learns from those mistakes that they learn. And that's incredibly important. That's why training is so important. And if there's one thing that many departments lack, especially departments of my size, that we're we're very fortunate here. I've got a nice budget. I've got a, a very nice training budget that many of my peers would kill me for, right? But departments of my size across the United States are not as lucky as I am. Mm-hmm. And something has to go. Is it equipment? Is it the, the pay of the personnel? Is it training? And unfortunately, in many places, the training is minimized. And that's what hurts. That's what hurts those departments. So something like that, being able to, from very early on, to educate the officers that, hey, you do have that tool, but you better articulate it. And you're doing that for a reason. You're doing that to to some suspicions and you have to start articulating why you're making this stop. Why do you think you see a bulge in the pocket? It's a known drug area. It's midnight. It doesn't matter what the race is, but you start putting those things together so that you can be lawful when doing that. And there are courses across the United States that have, um, that we forgot for many years mm. as constitutional policing, where you start looking at these things and concentrating on the constitution, which is what gets us in trouble. And mm. because of that, we've been able to avoid that and know, hey, <laughs> you're violating this person's constitutional rights. I could tell you, as a younger officer, there wasn't as much emphasis put on that as there is now. And, and I came up in the 90s, 95, 2000, at least in that first department that I was at. I learned a lot of that by going to court and getting stuff suppressed and losing cases. That Those lessons should have been drilled in me when I was a rookie yeah. getting heel trained. So. Yeah. That, I want to let Mike talk about this, but I want to just raise this question. It, it's around structure. I've had conversations with uh, members of the uh, Philadelphia Police Department. And one of the things I'd heard from them is they're getting trained and mentored by people of this older generation that are were, were brought up in ways that they're figuring out through going forward in their studies. That's not right. That's actually preventing them from being promoted because they're still stuck in some old ways. So I want to talk about, because I believe Mike gets to that. I love your references to Edgar Schein and your book, one of my favorite. And I like to think of mentoring and training as part of that structure. I think that's what you're trying to really speak out about, Ron, and and your leadership. So when you go back to the studies that you did, Mike, and you look at that Mm. structure and how people learned and grew up in the, Mm. inside the force. It's partly about the learning. And I think, Ron, you're absolutely right. When, if training's not uh, valued, then it's, it's a real problem. And I think there's a tendency to do training on the cheap. 
And that's probably sometimes worse than no training at all. There's a lot of online sort of packages kind of approach to training and that was really patronizing and, and not very um, helpful. But the, I think there's a, the, the, the kind of structures and things I was, I, I, I would focus upon those is that, that we, we can think of officers exercising discretion as if they have some kind of free will that they can do what they like, but you'll know that they can't, there is, there is the law, but the law is made material almost in the, the kind of forms they're going to have to complete. The reports are going to have to, the, the account they're going to have to give to the sergeant or to lawyers at a future date, but also their response is also affected by the people they're standing in front of who are also affecting what happens. It's that they're not passive in this context. It's, it's a very dynamic situation. So officers aren't free to act in, in, in the way that we can tend to think of them, but they're caught in these kind of, these dynamics of they've got expectation in the police station, they've got expectations in front of them. They've got things they know they're going to have to do. And so their choices are actually quite restricted and limited. So this is for me, the idea that they are, that it's a problem of police discretion is to misunderstand how discretion is influenced by so many things that we can change, that we can affect. If we understand how those are, are interpreted and, and, uh, and how they play out in, in interactions with, with, with citizens, does, does that, would you, you recognize that? Do you think? Yeah, a hundred percent. And I can tell you that also goes department by department and mm. area of the country from area of the country. Mm. And I think when I was policing, when I was younger, I had a lot more freedom than oh. some of the officers. Now I think mm. discretion in some ways has been curtailed to some bit because why the officers of past generations abused that discretion and we stuff was, we learned from some mistakes and we learned when we, we were dealing with maybe some rogue officers and what Nancy was saying, that older generation teaching the younger ones the wrong way. It's super important to make sure that they understand the left and right limits of their actual policing power. And mm -hmm. they are, you look at a young officer coming out of the academy, finishing field training at 21, 22 years old, and they still have an incredible amount of power. It's important for us to make sure that they understand and respect that and respect the amount of power that they have at their fingertips, but due to TV, movies, media, I think the public really thinks that these guys can do anything. I'll, uh, a movie like training day where Denzel Washington basically ran, ran Los Angeles and which was based on the rampart, uh, yeah. division scandal. That's where departments have to be transparent. They have to be open and they have to be engaging with the community. 
educate the community. We can't do that. That's TV. That's movies. We can't do that. If you want to watch something that's pretty, pretty accurate, maybe watch something like The Wire. That's pretty accurate. You know, that showed some of the ins and outs of what we could and could not do. Some good police work, some really bad police work, but that's more accurate than maybe some of these other shows. And internally, just making sure that we have this young officer and you talk about culture. And I do agree. We talk about police culture, American police culture, or just police culture in general across the world. And then what's the culture of your department? And I really reach out to the corporate world a lot. I learned a lot from them on how to build a really good, healthy policing culture internally within the department. So we have those checks and balances and we can start building our young officers at a very early age, building them into solid leaders. So to go back to what you said, Nancy, about Philadelphia, one of the things I did when I came in here, the culture, and I've been the chief professor for seven years, right? I've had a very interesting career. I bounced a, a couple of different places, did some overseas stuff, and then was very lucky and honored to be the chief here in this department. The base was good. There was a good base here, but there were some things that needed to be changed. And this thing with seniority, right? And, and I said, well, what is, where does seniority matter and where doesn't? And there were many promotions that I made of very young officers that goes against the grain of my peers and American policing tradition. But I was looking for talent and hard work over that seniority. And that's the way we've been able to change here internally, looking for talent and hard work over a survivor, somebody that's just been there for many years. And I had some conflict with one particular old-time sergeant, and we came to an understanding. He retired. And that kind of really showed that if you work hard here and you have some talent and you get the message that I'm pushing forward and get what's going to be successful in policing, you're going to, you're going to do fairly well here. And I've been very lucky, not very lucky, but we worked hard and we found success here in this department through our, the drop in crime, our clearance rates. So there's some statistics there, but more importantly, with our connection with the public, with our support from the public. Uh, and that's a bigger, hmm. that is a bigger metric that I, that's important to me over some of those other statistical measurements. Mm -hmm. I think one I would notice, so we started in one area and ended up doing observations with officers from three different forces. And I'd very much recognize the, the difference. It was, it was very difficult to say what it was different in each of the three organizations, but you knew there was something not quite right in one of them and things were functioning much better in another, for example. But I think also what was really interesting was to see the difference between teams of officers and their, and their, and their, relation, their relationship with the immediate supervisors, the sergeant and the inspect, and where that was a close relationship as in they all knew each other, then you could see the difference in their kind of mentality to the work, as opposed to somewhere it was a much more 
um, formal hierarchical relationship, perhaps. Um, but that's a bit of a crude um, simplification. There's more to it than that. But I think, yeah, that, that sense that, it, that some really knew what they were expected to do because they were thrown it by their inspector and their sergeant. Their sergeant was there c coaching them through the young probationary officers in their first two years, for example. And when you see that done well, you recognize a real skill, a real talent, which you can then not see is not there in others. That's the key thing, isn't it? Yeah. That's the study that I want to see, Mike, if you could do that in your next book. Because maybe the hypothesis is that if you focus on the human interactions, whether it's with the community or within the team, even if you have a very large department, if you can promote on those kinds of competencies, that they're able to understand that the importance, whether you could see a difference in, and what would be the difference? Just to interject, I thought that, that, that Ron, that discussion you had of, about ego was quite an interesting yeah. one. And I think that's perhaps part of it, isn't it? That, that those who don't immediately put their ego up front and particularly in encounters with citizens, but in any other context as well. Yeah. So Sorry, my, Nancy, to interrupt. No, no, that's fine. That's good. In my career, that came from my personal experience. I promoted up very young and was on a, a mission to succeed. And that goes from stuff in my past that eventually in my forties went to therapy and kind of worked on that stuff. But there was a drive in me that was almost negative. I had to prove to people there was a self-esteem issue. So I promoted up very fast and I described that if you were on team Camacho, you were squared away, but that was only about 20% of that department. And I'm talking about my first department in York, Pennsylvania. I went from patrol officer to captain very quickly. And I was successful because those 20% were the go getters. They were the proactive officers. Yeah. They were very much on my team. And those were the people that I went to, to solve my issues with crime and, and disorder. But look at how much more effective I would have been if I had the skills, the empathy, if I had put my ego in check to really make connections with the other 80% of that department. Hmm. So by working on myself, by going through therapy and really understanding that I had an ego problem. And I have a self-esteem problem. And I started aggressively working on that. Unfortunately, when I began the work on that, I retired from that department. And then I went to Afghanistan as an advisor. And I lived in Mexico as a year as a training advisor there for the department. But I was doing the work. And that's where I started reaching out and having some mentors and learning some corporate stuff. And then integrating it into what I was doing. And then I wound up at a college, Old Dominion for a year, and then still doing experiments and dealing with that culture, which was very different from the other culture, the other urban policing culture. So I took all those lessons, learned the bad stuff that I recognized was bad. What I was doing was not good. If in my first apartment, if I called you to come to my office, people got nervous. They knew that this prototypical angry captain 
was going to yell at them and just be angry. I was angry every day during that time period. I was angry. And got um, promoted at the same time. This is just yeah, because I, mean, I was successful. Yeah. And now I look at, I look back, I've had to mend a lot of those bridges because I came back to basically the same area, South Central Pennsylvania. I had to mend a lot of those bridges and then really started working on myself and then seeing those successes and then went and, and then went and started taking that philosophy and pushing it out. And now I share that. And now I also have the ability to see when there's an ego problem. And I think a lot of the issues that police officers run into is a self-esteem, ego-related problem. It's not that they're not trained. And if they're not trained, we can train them. Are you looking in the mirror? Are you really working on yourself? What's going on with your self-esteem? And we use psychologists a lot here. And we've even here recently implemented coaching an outside coaching company to, uh, to help our officers and you invest in your officers. And we've seen some really great results from that. So uh, I turned from Attila the Hun to Buddha in my leadership style and have seen the results really shoot up tremendously within myself and then the department. I mean, I do see that's an interesting transition, but it takes time and efforts and a bit of determination. I should imagine a lot of determination, but, but there's a tendency in kind of leadership literature to think almost talk as if you can choose to develop and adopt a different style. Like it's a kind of a, in your wardrobe and you put on a different outfit in the morning, but it's not like that at all, is it? It's, you have to be very self-aware and then think about how you go about changing that, that. Yeah. I, so I saw that what happened with me is I went to therapy mm. to try to fix a failing marriage mm. that the therapist couldn't even work on the marriage because I had so much wrong with me internally. Mm. As I started working on myself, didn't help the, the marriage failed, but I really opened up a world to me about who I was, why I was so angry all this stuff that I was dealing with. And I, that's why I push with us therapy and uh, going to see a psychologist and going to use coaching very much at the forefront. And we've seen successes. We've seen successes from people doing that, but you're absolutely 100% right. That is not easy to do. And it's, I speak about it a lot. I'm very passionate about it because there's still a stigma with that. And I try to speak about it and remove that stigma. I've had a blessed career. I've had many accomplishments. I've done a lot of different things and if I can do it, anybody can do it. So don't be afraid to uh, pour out your heart, whether it's in a therapy session or to, uh, to a doctor or to, we have our peers that are trained here or to a coach to get yourself better. I mean, I think there's a lot of emphasis, um, at least at a, at a rhetorical level on well-being and, and mental well-being. Increasingly, I've seen it in the police over the last probably five years, perhaps more, but it's a bit like the training issue 
And if you don't put any, anything behind that, any investment into that, there's a serious aspect of what the organization is trying to do. It becomes tokenistic. Like I'm, I'm just thinking of one organization which had a kind of a well-being week, which coincided with announcements of job losses. Like what, where's, where's the well-being in that? It's, it's, yeah, if, if you, if you, if you're serious about it, then think about it. everything has to be inflected with that and thinking about the well-being aspect of it. Yeah. I think the work that Ron is doing is, it is a really great message for young people that are thinking about policing, because I think that's what some new recruits want to hear. They might be wanting a place where they can actually grow uh, as individuals and be healthy mentally. But I want to go back to that sort of core piece of, and I'll just read this from Mike's work. Instead of police culture, perhaps we should look to those systems, processes, and features of the job that frame the work of the officers. So there's also the work, which you've touched on today. And I guess I'm challenging now just the question of what is it that's going to be the most uh, influential in shaping the future culture of policing? We've discussed here some of the human aspects of it that are critical, but we've also touched on the importance of looking at the types of processes and the systems and things that are really interrupting the way things have been done for a long time. What do you think is really going to be most impactful in shaping the culture of police going forward? Um, I'm, are you asking me? Um, yeah, you, I'm, I'm putting it out there, Mike, because okay. I know you've, you, be, I mean, you may come at it from a different perspective, but it, I think you both are really uh, thinking about this a lot. I could, of course, take the usual academic kind of cop out and say, uh, we only analyze problems, we don't come up with solutions. But I think for me, and there's a political dimension to this, and I think in your previous podcast, you talked about the relatively mature kind of political environment in which you're operating, that it's not all, you're not swinging from left to right or whatever, Republican or Democrat, and, and being uh, politically influenced in that way. But it's a very political uh, activity policing in many contexts, and in the, the, the uh, in our co context it is at the moment as well. You can't get politics out of it, but you need some consensus about what you're trying to achieve and some, some stability if you're going to pursue a long-term um, approach of the kind that you were describing, Ron, in terms of trying to build a relationship with your community. Um, and I think that one of the interesting conversations at the moment in the UK is around vulnerability and focusing on vulnerability rather than on perhaps on, on criminality. But you, yes, you've got a job to investigate criminality and prevent it where you can, but the, the major focus should be upon those who very often are the same people the police are encountering in their proactive roles who are vulnerable as much as they are perpetrators. Or when you catch them young, they're, they're on the verge of the criminal world. Now, I'm no expert in this area, but I think that's a really interesting approach because it changes the interactions immediately. If you're focusing on looking for criminality or your focus is looking on vulnerability, you know, your first, your first conversation is how are you, you know, as opposed to what are you doing here? So it's changing that kind of, that simple focus would be the starting point. And then you'd have to then reinforce that by saying, okay, then you, your first reporting is on what's, what evidence was of this, if you're talking to a 15 year old on the street at midnight, what were the risks? 
What were the concerns in the air? Where were they? What was the neighborhood like, et cetera? Why were they not at home? Who were they with? And you're building up a very different picture of that person than if you're looking at it as a potential criminal. So I always think it's, it's small things. The, the big policy changes are up there somewhere, but actually the day-to-day interactions on the street, are lots and lots of small things. Yeah. So I'll give you a great example uh, in my personal experience that has really changed um, policing a lot as far as empathy is concerned. So we've had this opioid epidemic that has hit the United States over the last 10 to 15 years. Yeah. And I could tell you that has hit a lot of police officers personally. Yeah. And now that problem is not their problem. That problem is our problem. That problem is affecting our family or policing mm-hmm. family, people that we know. Mm-hmm. And that really started changing mm-hmm. that robotic us versus them to, wow, this is now affecting me. This is affecting us. Mm. This is my son, my nephew. And I, I would tell you that mm. there are not many police officers that, that can say that the opium, opioid, excuse me, epidemic has not touched them, whether it's a friend. In my case, it was the son of a friend of mine, of a fellow officer. Nobody saw that coming. Fortunately, the young man died of an overdose and it really rocked that mm. department uh, to its core and we see it. So that has helped build that empathy, right? Mm. Which is so important in making that connection and not being so judgmental. And, mm. and we, we have a philosophy here that we're going to treat everybody the same. We're policing everybody the same with respect and it's super important for us to do that. And that's been a, a change in the way we go about doing business. And, and that's not to say that I wasn't taught that when I was a younger officer, but it's pushed so much now. And I think generationally that has also come into play in reference to having more empathy and kind of problem solving in a different way than we used to when I was a young officer. Mm-hmm. I yeah. think, go ahead, Mike. No, 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 please. I think about the shifting demographics, and I know we touched on this a little bit in the previous podcast, but where you have some immigrant groups in the community, and I did interviews last week where the large mm-hmm. Nepalese community moved into the area. Police said in this culture, it was perfectly fine that the husband beats the wife. So... How are you going to engage that culture? Uh, and I don't want to say that too blithely. My point is, is they come in with a different set of values and culture that now the police are going to interact with. And what you just said about empathy and also Mike's use of the word vulnerability, I think changes the context of the way they're going to interact. And I don't know how those discussions happen inside the department. I don't know where they happen, if they happen inside the car, if they are part of the team meetings? Are they, do they come out when there's incidents? Goes back to the technology. Does it come out when you're now watching film of incidents? Mm -hmm. How that, how does that get shaped? I think if you have an organization where the officers feel free to give advice, to give, to give suggestions that you could do it very quickly. We were having some issues here with our Hispanic population 
and car stops, right? And that came from the bottom up saying, I, I really wish that we could be on the same sheet of music when it came to some of the cultural differences as far as these car stops are concerned. So we did a car stop class for first the regular English-speaking citizens, and then we did a car stop class for the, the Spanish-speaking members of the community, and both went incredibly well. Again, that positive engagement, and you would hope that that starts that, that journey of trust and understanding that policing here in the United States is very different than policing in another country. And I saw that firsthand living in, in Mexico for that year. So a lot of things that I never saw in the United States and policing in Afghanistan, which is almost non-existent and you can go in other places. So just trying to say, Hey, our culture is this, we're trying to integrate you into our culture while respecting your culture. But if you, if you want to have a successful traffic stop with us, here, here are some of the things that we like you to, to do. And I think. Yeah, culture is proving such a flexible word, isn't it? We're talking, we're talking huge themes here. And I think, um, what, just a couple of observations for me. One, one working at a university with a very international student body, it was quite interesting during a particular, um, crisis in terms of, well, this before the pandemic, I'm trying to remember what it was, but there's something had happened and it raised some tensions, um, some racial tension in the area. Um, and I was speaking to police officers as part of my research. And I've just said to them, I think you need to be aware that some international students will never talk to the police because their entire experience of the police is they come looking for you. You never go looking for them. And they had never thought of that. So they had no idea that they were, the, the, those students were experiencing a problem because those students would never talk to the police. So how do you bridge that gap is a real challenge. I don't think they solved it, by the way. I think things would calm down relatively quickly, but I'm not saying I didn't follow up. The second thing was I read a book, and I think it's been emulated elsewhere. It's written in the 1970s, I think. You argued that if you want to raise people's ability to understand different uh, ways of looking at the world, you should just get them reading. So reading literature or anything that, that exposes them to different ideas, but also to a wealth of language, words they would never use to describe things. So you have a better vocabulary with which to see and observe and think about what you're, what uh, the world in which you're operating. Uh, I think I read that that was tried out or was being used in, in, in some police departments. And I, 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 I'm, I'm struggling here because I'm, I'm probably. Uh, would, would fail to find it, but it's, it seems to me a nice way of thinking about it. You know, the more you can describe difference and see the subtle differences in words, perhaps the more you can think in subtly different ways. I don't know. So a reading group for police officers. You know. Yeah. 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 Cool. One of the things we have here, we do have a reading list mm -hmm. that constantly changes. Okay. Um, and a lot of that has to do with leadership, right? But it's, they're, they're also, there might be some books in there where it's like, 
I read it, or maybe a lieutenant or a sergeant, maybe even a, a patrol officer read it and said, hey, this book resonated with me and we'll discuss it and we'll put it on the reading list. And I think a way that we are doing what you're asking is we heavily push on our education of the department. So by getting them exposed and more educated, we really are able to open those minds and get them to accept these other ideas, these foreign ideas. But I, I saw that a lot during my educational journey where things that I wasn't thinking about that I had no, I, I'll give you for, for, for uh, an example. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I was not aware with juveniles, it really didn't work a lot with juveniles that, hey, that their minds are still going through so many changes that you're not going to see that they're not going to stop growing and maturing until the age of 25, which mm. could explain a lot of the reasons why juveniles do the different things they do. Yeah. And just exposed to that sort of medical explanation or scientific explanation as to juvenile crime and why juveniles do the things they do. Had never heard of that. Didn't understand that and opened my eyes to maybe some of this is not discipline or home life. Maybe this is just them going through some changes and they can't help themselves with some of these things. Education is super important to the department, to us, and a way of accomplishing what you're asking, opening up our minds, getting us to accept different ideas, just like with me, with the corporate world and accepting some of those ideas and best practices and putting them in place in policing. Mm. Yeah, that's a, another absolutely artworks and, 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 and culture more broadly, definitely. Yeah. I think there's, um, there's, there's a lot to be learned from psychology and social psychology as well about that, that kind of those behavioral pressures and the changes and the, the, the biochemistry of it all is, is, is fascinating. And it just illustrates how, how complex uh, an environment uh, police officers uh, are, are operating in. So it's, it's a challenge. And your, your earlier comment that for officers, uh, for police organizations to, to look in a sense to dilute the pool or, or dilute the standards they're looking to, to recruit is perhaps the wrong way to go. But in this country, we've, we've had a recent experiment with requiring that police officers should have a, a degree a bachelor's degree, and that's something common on the continent, but has not been part of British expectations in terms of police officers. And I'm not sure that's the right answer either. I'm not, I don't have a firm opinion either way. I wonder what maybe your thoughts were, whether, what are the educational standards we should be asking? So here, many of our officers are veterans. And while you're in the army, air force, Navy, Marines, you might be able to pick up a couple of college classes, maybe if you're lucky, an associate's degree, but you're not going to really fulfill your degree. It isn't a requirement to get hired here. We have a a, a test, a standardized test, and then you interview. If you're a a veteran, you have these 10 extra points that you get on the written test that will put you in there. And then our rule is if there's three that we've interviewed, we have to take the veteran. Very veteran heavy 
department, which is, has its pros and its cons. Mm. What we do, this, this positive peer pressure that I love of, hey, you're here, the department's going to pay for your education, get your degree, get mm. your, go for your master's. And what I do is, and again, the beauty of having a smaller department where I can have these personal touches, I talk to the officers and explain how much the degree will help you depending on what you want to do when you retire and then how much a master's would help you when you retire, how many more doors that opens. And we really do have early on discussions about their careers and their futures and where they want to go and why the degree is so important. And some people might disagree. There's talk that degrees don't mean so much, but the data is telling us in policing, degrees mean a lot, less complaints, less use of force, better critical thinking. And we've seen that. So again, I'm looking at the results of my officers. And then again, I care about these guys. I really do with my own heart. I want to see them succeed once they've done their policing career. So we really talk about career after policing. What do you want to do and how much better you're going to be able to with that bachelor's and even better with that master's degree. And the culture here is now a positive peer pressure. I really don't have to do too much work. The sergeants and corporals and lieutenants are all involved, pushing each other, helping each other get their degrees. And would you support them to get a degree in, in any subjects yeah. within reason? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So we don't. The department will pay for their degree if it's in criminal justice. Maybe in the future, we probably should look at that and open that up a little more to maybe psychology, right? Getting a degree in psychology uh, and maybe some other things. But for now, it has to be in criminal justice within those rules. That's what we, that's what we do. Now, many of the veterans have the ability to go get degrees on their own because They've got the GI Bill, and that pays for their education yeah. too. Most of the officers here that are pushing for their degrees are, are using the borough to pay for it, and they're going to get their bachelor's and master's. Mm -hmm. I don't know if in all departments, Ron, that would be as uh, desirable if the chiefs haven't obtained any postgraduate kinds of degrees. Oh. and. I don't know to what extent you think that might be the case. I have heard other chiefs say that some chiefs will suppress that education level because they don't want to have that pressure or some somebody who thinks that they know better underneath them. Yeah. Cause... Again, because I worked on my ego and my yeah. self-esteem. <laughs> yeah, I think you're secure. A, yeah. Even though I'm a chunky guy, bald-headed with this mustache. I'm very secure in who I am. Yeah. And because I'm so secure in who I am, I want to see my people get to the next mm -hmm. level. And I do push them. I, I do push them to get them to the next level. We we're really want to see them grow and be successful. And I've been mentored. I've had some great mentorship outside of those police departments, outside of policing, where people have really, you know, helped me get to where I want to go. And now that's what I'm doing, pushing that forward and making sure that all my officers, the men and women that work for me here, that they can get to the next level. And that's not even including 
um, the civilian staff. I also take, um, I want to see the civilian staff uh, get to the next level and, and help them uh, on their journeys, on wherever they want to go. And again, I, big on karma. I push out all this stuff, all this positivity. And then it, it just seems to come back um, a lot. And then I see those successes. I see where people have grown and, and matured and done some really good police work and are so dedicated. And, I'm, and that just, it makes me happy and lets me know that I'm on the right course, full steam ahead. And, and again, I'm continually, my journey, I'm always listening to a podcast or a book or just getting better and working on myself all the time. Let me just see if uh, I know we're going to need to wrap this up here soon, but I have a question that I think would be interesting to hear given this recent conversation, what we're talking about. Mike, from your perspective, working with the officers in your study and Ron, from your perspective, what do you, what would you say we are asking police officers to do today? Uh, let me go first. These officers are asked to do so much. There's so much technology that they have to deal with. They, we've asked them to become experts in mental health. The men, uh, mental health epidemic that has hit the United States, I don't know if it's like that across the pond, but here in the United States, we have not reached our apex yet. So we've asked these officers to be, to know the law, to know the constitution, to uh, know all the policies and procedures that we have, to be able to be a, a counselor, know where all the resources are for dealing with homeless person, know how to deal with somebody that is in a uh, mental crisis, to know how to deal with technology and anything having to do with cameras, license plate readers, their body cams, and that's just, I'm not even talking about the detectives and what they have to do with cell phones. We ask them so much. And then we ask them to be perfect, right? To be these, these bearers of justice on their shoulders out in the community. It's tough. It oh. is tough. And if a chief is not doing everything in their power to support them in their mission, then they're failing. With the training, with making sure that their mental health is taken care of, to make sure that they're being disciplined and making sure that they are disciplined and they're on the right path, making sure that they're educated and, and fully trained to all these things they have to do. Way tougher than when I was a rookie in 1995. Incredibly tough. But this younger generation is up for the challenge. And I see them, they pick up things very quickly and I see them uh, succeeding as long as they have that support system. Where we fail is when we ask them to do all these things and we don't support them. We don't give them that training. Deal with, let's say, people in mental crisis. That's what we're doing over here. I, I think I would echo all of that. I don't think I, there's uh, anything I would particularly add I'd, I'd i'd change the 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 kind of direction a little bit though and add in something about 
honesty, and this is not about not going back to the crisis of legitimacy thing. It's, I, I think this, honestly about your ability to intervene, act in particular circumstances, it's, I think, uh, important, but also honest accounts of what then happens, that things go wrong and getting away from that tendency to kind of cover things up and smooth things over so that all officers give an account that perfectly fits, etc. And, and I know that there's good legal reasons why officers would have a, want to have a unified front because any differences in evidence for court and it's all pulled apart. But I think it's a dishonesty and it creeps in if, when it's accepted that you, before writing your statement of what you did and why you did it, you check all of the camera footage, to make sure that nothing you says is contradicted by any bit of footage. That's probably the honest that you made a mistake or that you saw something and it wasn't what you thought it was, but it was an honest mistake. I don't know. It's a bit of a naive, um, statement in one sense, but it's a, it's, it gets away from this kind of hooking the books approach to writing up what happened to an incident and saying it is legitimate to have differences in viewpoint because we are standing in different places. It's different. It's legitimate to interpret um, evidence differently or what, or an act, an accident differently. I know it's a high pressure situation sometimes and there's lots of scrutiny comes afterwards, but I, I wonder whether honesty would be a more, it would be, could be a more a feature of the way in which police present what they've done. I don't know. As I say, I suspect I'm being slightly naive and, and idealistic in that. One of the most honest places is when you're on the stand and you've raised your hand up and you've sworn to God to tell the truth. Hmm. And let me tell you, when you're getting picked apart by a defense attorney in front of a jury, that is not fun. It's incredibly stressful and embarrassing. Mm. Most times when a detective or an officer that happens to them, they learn and they make sure that they're doing things the right way. And I think as, uh, as far as reports, making sure that it all lines up, I, I don't, I'm not saying that doesn't occur in other places, but I think that's naive for them to do that. I think most people will, will recognize that there's no way that everybody has that same story. There are going to be differences. So staying with the truth and making sure that you know that your integrity is going to be challenged when you're on the stand, just being honest about what occurred and being transparent. I made a mistake and good prosecutors will be able to explain that away. That makes you look human. We're all make mistakes. To me, that's the better course to go. And I think successful officers um, that are in court a lot and on that stand a lot understand that you can say, I didn't do that. I, I didn't do that thing. It was a mistake or a, I did this and that was a mistake. But overall, juries hmm. are smart enough to know that overall, that little mistake probably has no bearing on the totality of the investigation and will give them the benefit of the doubt. Interesting. I think I'd like to ask you all one more question and you can just tie in any thoughts you have uh, today with this last question. Uh, 
I will say for my part, having conversations with police chiefs, some lieutenants and sergeants and others has given me a lot of hope for the future of policing because I see them, I see them openly struggling and wondering and also thinking through some of the issues that are confronting police. And I'd like to know what, what gives you hope today about policing? If I go first, then. I think what observing officers for six years on and off did for me was, I think, made me realize what the role really was. And much as Ron's just described, the complexities and the, the, the kind of demands we place on officers. And actually in that context, how for the most part, officers are doing their very best in trying circumstances, but also that we, that media focus upon incidents and particularly incidents that go wrong or are dramatic in some way, completely misrepresents much of what policing is, which is routine. And it's about the, the, I don't want to say it's about the small stuff. It's the, it's it, the important stuff, but it's, you know, it's responding to domestics. It's, it's responding to mental health crisis. It's the stuff that can go very quickly, very badly wrong and getting in there and sourcing out all of that stuff, which is nobody's really pays attention to because it's not dramatic. It doesn't, it doesn't hit the clips on the. A TV fly on the wall documentary type things, does it? It's not a car chase. So actually getting to know what police officers do and seeing how much of it is done by officers with all good intent to the best of their abilities at that in this context in which they find themselves. But I think that's, that's something I, I would cling to that when people start saying defund, blah, blah, blah. You've not really understood the majority of what police officers do and that we need them. Particularly, actually, one thing, sorry, I'm, I'm rambling a little bit now. One thing I would add to, is to, to the list of things we expected. That expectation only increased in the last 10 years during austerity periods as funding for mental health, for social care, for, for drug rehabilitation was cut to the bone. The, first, the only people you could call and get a response from became the police. And that's, that they have endured through that is, is I think quite, quite a testament in many respects. Mm. So I'll finish on that. I, I think for me is being able to affect change for the positive and just, I, I go, I teach classes all over the United States. I've been blessed enough to be asked to speak at conferences and just being able to give that message and hopefully letting that message resonate mm. with some of the, the attendees or doing a podcast like this. You never know what chief or sergeant or lieutenant patrol officer might say, wow, I didn't think about that. Or maybe even a politician, a, a, a mayor or a borough township manager or, or something somebody of that ilk where they're like, wow, I, I didn't know how much training is so important to police. And if I just allocated some more funds to training that maybe we could really do away with 
this issue and good training, like the professor said, not, you know, check the box training, which is problematic, but good, realistic training that's retained, that gives the officer the tools that they need to do. Because of the way policing is now in the United States, I, I have hope that these messages will resonate and that we're still evolving and maybe somebody can take a little nugget from some of my presentations or some podcast or do what I do and listen to other podcasts. And you just never know when you could pick up a good piece of information that will help you make your department better, help keep your community safer, help bridge the gap between the community and the police, uh, which is uh, what is necessary for success. Yeah. Yeah. And what I think of, Ron, is I think of the officers or sergeants of people coming up through that are saying, hmm, that's what I've been thinking. I didn't know that a chief would actually come out and say that, but that's also ideas that I've had. And same with Mike, with the ideas that you're expressing and putting forward, the hope is that it will become part of the mm. conversation mm. in many places. And people go, oh, it's okay to talk about because this is exactly what I've been thinking about. Mm. And by the way, Ron, if you would share that reading list, the Chambersburg Police Department's reading list, I would love to put that in the notes. Sure. I think that's great. I don't know how you feel about that, but if you're willing to share it. No, no I'll, I'll send over a copy of the book so you can add it to the reading. To the library. Uh, I love that. Please. That's I, I, perfect. I, I want to read the book, please. <laughs> yeah, it's just in this reading list. What we've seen is people read and then they're on the same page. They can discuss the, yeah. the tenets of these, the principles of these, of the books. And I put one on there personally. I'm a, I love history and it's about ancient commanders, Alexander the Great, Cyrus the Great, Hannibal, and just their takes on leadership, which I found incredibly fascinating and uh, a lot of cops, they love history, so that could resonate with them also, reading these books and just learning. It's the same, right? It's been the same since the beginning of time. We just forget. We forget these principles, and we need to, to read and learn these principles again over and over so that we're sharp in our leadership abilities. Thank you so much to both of you. I think okay. there'll be some more conversations in the future. I've enjoyed it. It's been very interesting. Thank you. for Yeah. 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 Thank you. Yep. Thank you so much for for weighing in. We'll see you all, all right. later. Thank you. Bye. Bye. Cheers. Bye. See you.